Oh God, we thank you that you are a God who speaks through your word, and I pray that you would open our hearts now to your word, and our word, and our, open your word to our hearts, and our hearts to your word, and I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Good morning. morning. Welcome to the 8 o'clock service. It will be interesting to see who shows up at 9.30, yeah. Uh, I saw recently a, a New Yorker cartoon, you know, one, one frame cartoon, and a uh, husband, I guess it's a husband, this is the implication, is standing, uh, looking at his wife who is seated on the couch. She's kind of at the far end of the couch, turned away from him. And the husband is speaking, and he says, the hardest thing to do is to forgive yourself. And I've done that, so why can't you forgive me too? I thought it was funnier than that. Um, the, um, I mean, it's ironic. I, could, I, I promise you I relate to that statement. Um, and I think a lot of us can. I've forgiven myself. Why can't you forgive me too? Relationships are just such a wonderful, intrinsic part of our lives. And I think the closer we get to folks, I mean, we have the higher highs, but we also have the lower lows because of the depth of that Love and, and friendship, it's just, that's just a messy, uh, just, just part of the messy uh, beauty, isn't it, of being human. But because relationships are intrinsic to our lives, because humans are humans, and we're human too, forgiveness is going to play a part in our relationships. Sometimes forgiveness as receivers, sometimes as givers of forgiveness. So forgiveness is what we're talking about this morning. But forgiveness, forgiveness is tricky, isn't it? It's kind of like the the couple in the cartoon. It's a lot easier to ask for forgiveness when we need it than it is to offer forgiveness when we've been hurt. Why is that? I think, at least on some level, we want to make other people pay, but we tend to let ourselves off the hook. I mean, like the husband in the cartoon, he kind of let himself off the hook, right? It turns out sometimes it's easy to forgive ourselves, whether we realize it or not. And when someone hurts us, what do we want? We want retribution, we want uh, revenge, or we want groveling. I mean, give me an, an apology, and it better feel sincere to me, right? I mean, you got to have to make up this hurt in some way. But what if we have hurt someone else? I mean, they're probably just being too sensitive. I mean, come on, it's not that big of a deal. I've forgiven myself. Why can't you forgive me? Why can't you forgive me? Probably there's lots of reasons. But at least one is that offering forgiveness makes us feel vulnerable. Right? Kind of like, like we're just opening ourselves up to getting hurt again. There's something about the anger, the resentment, the stewing. There's something about the sense that they owe us, that barrier between us that makes us feel stronger. Safer, in control, 
makes it feel like it's less likely to happen again. And yet, it eats us up inside. You can look at all sorts of mental health journals, probably physical health journals as well, and know that forgiveness is a key to mental health. And I think you could find spiritual health journals that talk about forgiveness as a key to spiritual health. But it is unnatural, isn't it? And sometimes it feels unjust. Sometimes we say we forgive, and we might even want to forgive, but we're still holding on. Anybody else, or is that just me? We hold on. All of us want to be forgiven. Not many of us find it easy to forgive. And that brings us, my very quiet and pensive 8 o'clock service, that brings us to the parable in Matthew chapter 18. The parable of the unforgiving servant. Now this parable comes as a part of a conversation it was happening in last week's gospel passage. I've preached mainly on Romans, but I referenced it. You might remember. Uh, that's uh, where Jesus told the disciples that if someone sins against you, then go and tell them their fault privately. And if they listen, you've gained back your brother, your friend, your the member of the church. And we might think if someone, if you've hurt someone, go and apologize. That, that makes sense to us. But, but what Jesus says is when someone has sinned against you, don't wait for them to offer the apology. You go pursue that relationship. Go pursue it. Pursue reconciliation. And that clearly, I think, assumes forgiveness. Because even though that person's hurt us, we want to be in relationship with them. It assumes forgiveness. Now, as our passage begins, Peter, here's the implication. And you know, Peter's the star student. He's always, always talking. He's the one that's always, oh, pick me, pick me, pick me. And so Peter uh, hears that implication of forgiveness, and, and he says, well, well, teacher, how many times should we forgive? As many as seven? Now, what Peter has done is... is you may not realize this, but what Peter is done, he's taken the number of piety that was taught by the rabbis. Oh, you, my children, you should not just forgive once. You should not just give for, forgive twice, but you should forgive as many as three times. Peter's taken the pious number, and he's doubled it, and he's added one. I mean, come on, Peter, right? How many times should we forgive? Jesus, many as seven times. And Peter's kind of puffing out his pious chest. And the disciples are going, seven times? That is crazy talk. What in the seven times? Peter, shut up. And to their great surprise, Jesus says, you're thinking way too small. Jesus says, I tell you, not seven, but 77 times. And some translations Flip it and say 70 times 7. So somewhere between 70 and 490 times, right? What's Jesus saying? Either way, quit counting and keep forgiving. Quit counting, keep forgiving. And so to make the point, he tells the story of a king who wants to settle his accounts. That's a pretty smart thing for a king to do. 
And so he's going through the accounts with the royal accountants, and they come to, in the books, they find a servant, a slave, uh, it's a subject, don't get hung up on that. They find someone who owes, one of his subjects that owes him 10,000 talents. Now, a single talent, I mean, a talent was a large measurement. A single talent was equal to 6,000 denarii. 6,000 denarii, which means nothing if you don't know what a denarii is, right? The denarius was about a day's wage for a laborer. So 6,000 days' wages, about 20 years for a single laborer. So one talent is about 20 years' worth of wage for a single laborer. In today's dollars, I did the math. So at the average American salary per day before taxes is $225. That means a talent is about a little over $1.3 million. $1.3 million is one talent. This guy owes 10 thousand talents conservatively that is north of 13 billion dollars i mean how do you do that like that's got to be a lot of fun right i mean how do you how do you get into debt one guy to another guy 13 billion dollars jesus is I mean, that amount is not the point that's probably more money than there was in the entire world at that point jesus is describing a person so far in debt that they could never pay back even a fraction in their lifetime that's the point right and so what is he going to get he's going to get justice he's going to get what he deserves according to the law which means he's going to be sold his family's going to be sold all his possessions are going to be sold that is what he deserves according to the laws of the day. Now, we can talk another time about whether it was just for someone to get sold, but that is, that is according to the laws, that's what happened. And in the face of what was fair in his culture, in the face of justice, he says, listen, I just need a little more time. I just need a little more time. Now, you and I have both watched enough mafia movies to know when someone says, hey, boss, I just need a little more time, they got no plan." It's not getting paid back. And Jesus gives us just a glimpse into the character of God when he says the master had pity on the man. He had pity. Now, that uh, word pity is a pretty mild translation choice, in my opinion. Now, it's, it's, it's not a bad one. It's just mild. The Greek word is splachnizomai. Say that quick. Splachnizomai, right? And, and it literally, it, it means the way it sounds. It sounds what it means. It means to be moved in one's guts. And it's the expression, it actually means bowels. But it's, just a, it's a deep feeling of love and compassion. This is 2,000 years ago. They would hear our heart. You know, we have felt it in my heart. And they were like, ugh, your heart? And like, I mean, it's just, it's culturally, that's just what they thought, right? So they moved in their guts, of deep feeling of love and compassion. When, remember the loaves and the fishes? Five loaves, two fish. Jesus sees the hungry crowd, and he is splachnizomai for them. When the prodigal son is walking home, and the father sees him in the distance, walking on the horizon, his heart melts because he is splachnizomai. 
moved in his guts with love and compassion. I want you to imagine that uh, you've loaned someone $13 billion and they can't pay you back. Would you be splunk needs of mine? Would you be moved in your guts with love and compassion? Like, probably not. So not only is this king incredibly merciful, incredibly generous, he's also incredibly wealthy because he ends up being the one who pays the price. Right? He has taken the debt that the man owes him. The king is the one who takes the loss. Stroke of a pen. Just the declaration of the king. The man is out of debt. His loan is forgiven. He's a free man. So let me ask you, turn it around a little bit. If you owed someone $13 billion, I mean, you're not sleeping, right? You owe them $13 billion and they simply write it off and set you free. What about them? Would you be splunked? Would you be deeply moved with love for that person? Gratitude, awe for your gracious, generous benefactor. We're not told how this suddenly debt-free man reacts. In fact, I think that's actually what we're supposed to ponder. What we are told is that on his way home, he sees a man who owes him. This man owes him 100 denarii. That's about, in our dollars, $22,000, so certainly not nothing. I mean, if somebody owed me $22,000, I'd want want them to pay me. But it's not even a tenth of a percent, probably not a hundredth of a percent, of what he has just been forgiven. And we know he doesn't need the money to pay off his own debt. He doesn't have any debt. And yet he demands Payment. He actually chokes the guy. And this borrower also asks for more time. But the man who just received the boundless mercy does not give mercy. The man who just had his impossible debt forgiven does not forgive this debtor. Instead, he throws him into jail. And we are meant to think, what a jerk. What a jerk. That's what his fellow slaves thought, right? So they went and told the king, and the king, who had been merciful, instead gives him justice. Now remember, Jesus tells the story in response to Peter's question, how many times should we forgive? But Jesus steers Peter, and he steers us away from scorekeeping. Like, All right, I've already forgiven you five times. Not doing it again. Because the question of how many times you should forgive kind of fades away when you realize how much God has forgiven you. How much God has forgiven you. That's the frame that Jesus is giving us. We are meant to think of that unforgiving servant. Like, what a jerk. And then the penny drops, and we realize we are the ones who have been forgiven the $13 billion debt. We are the ones who receive the mercy 
the lavishly generous king. We're the ones who have been set free because the king paid the price. I think for one of the hardest things for a preacher to do in, in our modern world is to convince people that our sins actually separate us from God. And, and that's because, uh, part of the, it's because um, we let ourselves off the hook. And it's also partly because we know that God is so loving. But we sometimes forget that God is holy. And He is absolutely and perfectly loving and holy both. His love and His holiness are in perfect accord and they actually make each other even more beautiful. But He cannot lower the standard of His holiness in order to be loving. And so there's this gap between Him and us. It is the gap of our unholiness and maybe for us it looks like selfishness or, or pride or wrongdoing or whatever it is, but it's a $13 billion gap and we can't pay it off. We can't pay it off. And if we just kind of look at ourselves and shrug and we're like, you know, I'm really not that bad. I mean, I, don't, I mean, there's plenty of people worse than me and, and I, don't, I didn't really need to be forgiven for much. We will not be very impressed with the forgiveness that we have received. And I'm not trying to beat you up, and I'm not trying to say you're really a lot worse than you think. What I, I want to say this, though. I know this about myself. I know that if Jesus is telling his number one disciple, Peter, that Peter is like a servant who owes 10,000 talents, then from Jesus' perspective, it is not likely that I'm going to be in less debt than Peter. But the gospel message is that the king has paid the price for us. With the stroke of the pen, with the declaration of the king, our sins have been forgiven and we have been set free. That's the gospel. And it ought to make us who have received forgiveness, it ought to make us forgivers. It ought to make us forgivers because nothing anyone in this life owes you. No sin against you. No gossip. No backstab. No rudeness. Whatever it is, nothing compares to what God has forgiven us. And I'm not saying that's not important. I'm not saying it wasn't so painful. I'm not saying it doesn't need to be worked out. And I'm not saying it's easy. What I'm saying is that his forgiveness and our subsequent freedom, that that's the whole frame of reference for our lives. And his forgiveness ought to frame how we respond when others hurt us. When others sin against us. In other words, we can cross the gap in his strength. In the strength of his forgiveness. Because his forgiveness ought to make us forgivers. The king expects it. And he doesn't expect it because it's demanding. He doesn't expect it because his mercy comes with an asterisk or his, uh, with a caveat or a string attached. He expects 
that his forgiveness creates forgivers, uh, the way that I expect that when I mix blue paint with yellow paint, I'm going to get green paint. Like, that's just what happens. There's a transformation that happens, and it's irreversible. It's natural. And yet, I am a Christian human. I've been, I've been walking with Christ for over 33 years, and I, and I live between what is already true about me, which is that I've been declared king, uh, clean and righteous. I live between that and what is not yet true about me, which is that I will be righteous, actually. And so I know that I've been forgiven, and I've been forgiven an immeasurable debt by our merciful and loving king. And I also know that forgiveness doesn't come easy. Right? Don't come naturally. In fact, forgiveness isn't a feeling. Forgiveness is an act of the will that is sourced by continually looking at Jesus and what he's done for me. Now, I'm going to give you just a, uh, a small example to make the point. Many years ago now, so I don't know, my kids were really small. I was reading to Thomas, my middle son, who's a sophomore in high school now, and he was, um, he couldn't read or write. And um, he was, so he's that little. And I was sitting, I was laying on his bed with him. Uh, and he asked uh, to read from the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's a beautiful Bible. It's really vivid, wonderful, simple, but wonderful pictures. And he asked for the crucifixion story. So I'm reading it to him. Oh, I'm doing such a good job as a parent. Because uh, my son has asked for this story. And, um, and so I'm reading it to him. And I look up. And etched on his bed is his name in the wood. Except it's not really his bed. It's my bed. In fact, my grandmother gave me that bed when I was a little boy before she died of breast cancer. It was really important to me. But Thomas can't read or write. Caroline! And, buddy, I was going to let her have it. Because she, she knew what she did. And I called that little six-year-old in, and I just, I was going to, I looked, I mean, you know how, you know how if you're going to let somebody, you kind of look down, and you're going to give them the look. You know, I looked down before I gave them the look, and what did I see looking back at me? Jesus on the cross in the Jesus Storybook Bible. And he seemed to be speaking to me, saying, all this I did for you. How are you going to react? And I had to forgive her. Instead of yelling at her, I had a conversation about responsibility. And you see, that forgiveness wasn't an obligation. It was a gift to me. I mean, we ended up hugging, and, and, and she was actually sorry, rather than me yelling at her and just ruining the night. It's just a small example. I don't know what you're holding on to. Like, I don't know what sins have been wrought against you. I don't know what pain others have caused you. But I do know that God's forgiveness of us through the, through the atoning death of Jesus changes us. And that Jesus is the source of of our forgiveness of others. He's the fountain of forgiveness. He's the safe harbor when it feels unsafe. Forgiveness is not saying those things didn't matter. 
They mattered. It mattered a lot. That's why forgiveness is so costly. Forgiveness is saying that those things aren't going to control you anymore because your life belongs to the gracious, generous King. And there is nowhere safer that you could be. Forgiveness changes us. Christians are different. We belong to the King who is merciful and generous and gracious. Amen.